0: And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: You asked me what the most surprising story of this uh, still emerging 2020 race for the presidency has been so far. I'd have to say it's the emergence of Pete Buttigieg, the 37 year old mayor of South Bend, Indiana as a top-tier candidate for the Democratic nomination. I sat down with Mayor Pete in South Bend this week for my Axe Files show on CNN that aired tonight. Mayor Pete Buttigieg, uh, good to see you uh, here in South Bend in the old Studebaker plant where you announced your candidacy. Thanks for having me on. This has been quite a a rocket ride for you uh, in the last few weeks standing on the stage next to the former vice president, presidential debate. You just uh, improbably turned in one of the biggest fundraising quarters in uh, Democratic Party history. Uh, Do you ever step back and say, how the hell did this happen"?
0: Yeah, there's not that much time to step back. But uh, when I do, it it is extraordinary. Obviously, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't believe we could win, believe in our message and believe in the campaign. But uh, our plan was to have a slow burn to try to assert that we belonged in the race, period uh... over the spring and into the summer and then hope to break out in the debates what we found instead is that the message caught fire early uh... now the challenge for us is to make sure that we're really reaching everybody with it and that we have the kind of ground organization it takes to actually win
1: yeah your organization has to catch up with your it's yeah. a high-class problem.
0: It's a great problem to have. We started out with four people uh, in a tiny office here in, in South Bend at the beginning of this year. And now we're uh, uh, we're around a couple hundred and growing fast. But, again, I think when, when you have a good message and uh, when you present a different kind of messenger, uh, America really will give you a chance, especially at a moment like this where I think the party is on the lookout for something different. I think there's a, a, a deep sense among the American people that uh, we can't just return to normal. Neither a Democratic nor a Republican vision of of going back to some status quo is going to work. And I think that's what's drawn a lot of people to take a look at the campaign.
1: I want to ask you about that message. But before, I I just want to, you were sort of a sensation in March and April. Um, It's been a little uh, more rugged going lately. Your poll numbers have dropped a little. Is there any concern that, hey, I got to win next winter and I don't want to win March and April of the year before.
0: Well, you, you definitely don't want to uh, have your best moments too early in the race. But what we've seen is, uh, uh, you know, we arrived in, in a kind of very swift fashion and, and now uh, we've carved out a place in uh, in, in the leading group. Um, but in order to stay there, we've got to earn that. We've got to earn it every day. And it's making sure that we're speaking to the, the concerns of Americans who are wrestling with the change around us and making sure we're doing the, the kind of unglamorous work on the ground that it takes to really uh, make good on the that all the way through into the caucuses and the primaries.
1: You, uh, you, you wrote in your book here uh, that uh, the reason to run, when you talk about running for mayor as a 29-year-old, the reason to run, the ideal reason to seek any job was clear. The city's needs matched what I had to offer. What about you matches this moment and the presidency of the United States?
0: Well, I think we've got a moment where the country needs something new, uh, needs an answer to these changes that are accelerating, that are getting away from a lot of Americans. They have people in communities like mine, wondering whether there's a place for them in the future, which is one of the reasons why the the president came along selling a certain message, which was, I'm going to turn back the clock and nothing's going to change at all. That message is false, but we've got to have one that uh, is just as responsive to that sense of turn without making an impossible promise to turn back the clock. My story is that of somebody who belongs to the generation that has so much at stake in whether we can resolve economic change uh, and master it to make it work for us, whether we we can resolve climate change, whether we can deliver racial equality in our time. Uh, And I also come from the region that has struggled the most with these kinds of changes, and the region that my own party, the Democratic Party, has lately struggled to connect with in a way that helped lead to this presidency. Uh, I'm a product of the times that we're living in. I'm a veteran of the war in Afghanistan. I think all of these things, plus the experience that I've had on the ground, guiding a city up against colossal challenges, adds up to a different package of of experience uh, and a different uh, messenger, but also a different message than any of the others are offering.
1: You're 37 years old. You're two years over the constitutional minimum uh, for serving as president. And, And you obviously feel that's a virtue.
0: Yeah, very much so. I think uh, you're seeing it around the world, actually. There are a lot of leaders from El Salvador to France to New Zealand who have been part of this generation, uh, would be the same age or younger uh, than I would be taking office in 2021, and ordinarily the arrival of a new generation of leadership is the kind of thing that America leads. Right now, it seems like we're playing catch up, but I do see on the trail, by the way, not just among younger voters, but among voters of all ages, a desire to to bring forward new voices and to hear from that generation that has a personal direct stake in whether this country is going to tackle some of these issues quickly. Uh, Because when I get to the age of the current president in the 2050s, my generation is going to be held to account for whether we tackled these issues in these years that, that are coming upon us right now.
1: Implicit in that is that the president won't be here in 2050 and perhaps has less of a stake in that you've got two opponents who are older than he is. Should age be an issue for them?
0: I think that any candidate of any age can put forward a compelling message and be a great president. But I do think I come at these issues differently because I do have a a personal expectation, Lord willing, of of being around uh, in the years when we're going to know whether or not the actions we took right now, 2019, 2020, 2021, got the job done on protecting our future economy from climate change, whether we got the job done on having a rising tide actually lift all boats, which has not happened for most Americans the entire time that I've been alive. You start the clock in the early 80s or late 70s, and the rising tide rose just like they promised us it would, but so many of the boats didn't budge. And if we don't act now to resolve that, then the entire balance of my adult life uh, will be spent in a period of, of decline and despair for this country, when actually I think our country has the means especially because of the, the technologies at our fingertips and the things that couldn't have been imagined when when they were making vehicles in this building in the 60s. Uh, we have the the possibility of having our best moments yet as a country.
1: You know, you talk about this transformation and, and redeeming these communities and these groups of Americans who have been left behind or feel that they've been left behind, but in, in a certain way, it feels like your, your energy has gotten out ahead of your ideas on this one. We still haven't really heard uh, that sort of big economic uh, package, that 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 big clarifying idea about how you're go- you're going to achieve this.
0: Well, I've tried to be very clear on where I stand on every important issue of our time, including economics. Of course, we'll continue unveiling policies as we go. But
1: so, what's the uh, most important thing to do to make good on that promise to these? Uh, to these folks who have been on the other side of that digital divide, yeah. not benefiting from the great the growth that we've seen, communities like yours. So, what, what is the promise for them?
0: It's two sets of things. Uh, the first set is deceptively simple. It's things like. Making sure people get paid more. We need to raise the minimum wage. Sometimes we think of these convoluted policy mechanisms uh, to solve what we think are complicated problems. A lot of complicated problems get simpler if you have enough money to survive more than a month. And so many Americans don't even have 400 bucks to save in an emergency. It's why minimum wage needs to go above 15. But this isn't. This nine. is an it's,
1: idea that every Democratic candidate supports. Sure. So it's not uniquely yours. So this brings
0: me to the more complicated okay. ideas. But but uh, I do think it's important to recognize that most Democrats agree on a lot of these ideas, and it's okay. Uh, The question then becomes, you know, what kind of messenger can deliver those in a way that keeps our focus on what's actually at hand versus getting diverted into talking about the president so much that we're not talking about you. And I think there is a risk of candidates either talking too much about him or talking too much about themselves, uh, that we don't hear some of those core messages that that I'd like to think all Democrats agree on, but some may be more successful than others in delivering. Now, there are other things you aren't hearing about as much from other campaigns. Uh, Part of that is uh, the extent to which our benefit system needs to be decoupled from this system we have now that still pretty much assumes that you're gonna have the same career or even the same employer for your whole working life. That is not true for most people in my generation, anybody younger than me. You're probably gonna change careers more often than my parents change jobs. That has some very specific implications in economic policy. For example, when we're talking about how you accrue retirement savings, or unemployment insurance, or uh, various benefits uh, from health to family leave, I think that if you're working seven hours a week driving an Uber, 7 divided by 40 is how much you ought to have that pay into these benefits for you. We've got to have uh, prorated portable benefits. I don't want to get too much into the mm-hmm. weeds, but, but my point is we are also going to have to be very creative economically in making sure that the way we support not just jobs but workers adds up in the 21st century. So some of these things are things you'll hear everybody talking about, like uh, shoring up organized labor because the Democratic Party Mm -hmm. believes in organized labor. Some things not a lot of people talk about, like uh, how we can organize labor at the industry level, not just the firm level. Um, and uh, we also need, I think, to be much more intentional and specific in our plans for black Americans. That's why I've proposed a Douglas plan that ought to be as ambitious as the Marshall plan well, that rebuilt we well, Europe, uh, Len, but it me, needs to have specificity and intention.
1: Let, let's stop right there, because one of the things that happens is, you you know, one of the uh, distinctions you earn when you become a hot candidate is greater scrutiny, mm. and uh, uh, and that has happened with you, and a lot of it has been around this issue of race. You've, you, you rightly hold up many of the things you've done in South Bend uh, as, uh, as a symbol of, of, of progress, but there have been troubling issues. Here, I remember being in this, uh, or watching your announcement from this room, uh, and I was struck by the fact that in a city that is 40% uh, black and Hispanic, uh, you had 5,000 people here, very few uh, faces of color, Uh, in this room. And and this has come back recently because of uh, a tragic uh, police-involved shooting here uh, of a a black man that is still murky under investigation. We don't know what all the details were, but it it stirred the community. And some of that anger was directed at you uh, because of the firing of a very popular black police chief early in your term and the fact that police uh, representation of African-Americans has declined Uh, in your seven years uh, as mayor, these are issues for you.
0: Yeah, of course. And when you're in charge, you bear responsibility for everything that happens, good or bad, on your watch. I can point to the success we've had in uh, reducing the poverty rate, reducing unemployment for black residents still higher in the community. Than, than, but yeah, we also have to be honest about the fact that... Higher uh, than other communities. Higher, I'm not sure the disparity is higher than other communities. I don't think that's true. Look, we, we didn't black, introduce... Uh, uh,
1: black, uh, there you've got 40% uh, yeah. blacks uh, living uh, under the poverty level, that's... Yeah. Higher than the national average, yeah, well, say with
0: Hispanics. of course, our overall poverty rate level is higher than the national average. This is a community that's 25% in poverty. These are problems that go back to before I was born. But I am responsible for what I did to address them on my watch. And I can walk you through all of the steps that we've taken to invest in uh, minority-owned business in the city, to direct resources for home repair, to underinvested in minority neighborhoods, to make sure that uh, different kinds of community resources are available uh, to underserved parts of the population. Population, uh, But there are also a lot of areas where I can't claim that we've solved the problem uh, I think the important thing is to recognize that this is happening in the context of patterns of exclusion That are economic uh, as well as across health education and, and national and justice and
1: national But but, but here's my question. You're a data guy yeah. um, The if you look at the number of black police officers going from 25 to 13 yeah. Uh, on your watch. If you look at uh, uh, minority business enterprises and contracting the city less than 1%, aren't those warning signs for people? Does, don't, don't, th- those are things that should be under your control.
0: Well, uh, some of these things are incredibly challenging, and and the recruiting is a good example. So it's not like we uh, are just now coming awake to the problem of uh, hiring and retaining black officers on the police department. Uh, We actually started uh, publishing our own data so that uh, everybody could look in and see, how many applicants we attract in, the first, attract in the first place, and where we lose them along the way. Uh, we've conducted job fairs. I've, I've stood in, in, in front of the cameras pleading with community members to help more people uh, apply and then uh, help, try to help make sure they succeed. Uh, we're not the only community facing a racial gap in police recruitment and retention, too. Uh, the profession as a whole, has become harder to attract people to. And that's even more true uh, in many cities, including mine, uh, when it comes to minority recruitment. So I'll own up to the fact that we have The having of problem. the number is, is, uh, is kind
1: of, it's 6% yeah, of, of the entire force, yeah. 25%, 24%, 25% of the population is yeah. is African. What about on the minority contracting? Because you're talking about, you're making speeches, and I know you believe deeply in them, about uh, boosting minority entrepreneurship around the country. You have this Douglas plan, uh, that p- it, part of it uh, addresses that and other elements of your program address that. But it, but it, it was kind of stunning to me to see that small a number of contracts in the city yeah. going to a minority-owned enterprise.
0: Yeah, so the reason that number's out there is because we took a look to find out what it was, knowing that, that it wouldn't be a great number. But when I arrived, we didn't even have the ability to assess uh, how we were doing it, doing business with the minority contractors. We said, okay, we've got to fix that. Now we're at a stage where we're saying, okay, how do we set better targets? But legally, we're uh, not able to do that until we conduct A study of all the disparities. So that's underway. It's going to be delivered. It's been in the works for a while. It's going to be delivered this summer. Uh, Again, these are not issues that uh, uh, that were created on my watch, but I'm determined to make sure that they improve on my watch. And there are many indicators that are getting better. Some that aren't, and we're honest about that. Um, But we try to make sure that people at least know where we stand, what the reality is, and then the steps that we are taking in order to drive progress. And uh, we established an office that didn't even exist. until uh, uh, two or three years ago to track and then drive improvements around diversity and inclusion. Why didn't and, it exist to, uh, uh,
1: until two or three years ago? You've been here for seven.
0: Uh, yeah, so uh, we, we started out by uh, figuring out what we could do with the tools that we had <clears throat> and then said, you know what? We need to go to a whole new level and create a department that will work on this. And now we're looking at what it takes to add to the resources that that shop has. Uh, these are not things that you flip a switch on overnight, but there has been intentional action, much of it yielding real results. And I would point to things like uh, the diversity in our administration, the diversity in the appointments that I have made, including to the civilian board that makes decisions about hiring and firing police uh, officers, just strong minority representation, uh, and the economic growth that we ha- have had, improvements in minority neighborhoods, recognizing that Uh, These are not things, I'm not staking my candidacy on the idea that I came in as mayor and in my low-income city, poverty ended, racial inequality ended, uh, injustice ended. That's not the story I'm trying to tell. What I'm saying is that we have been able to make tremendous strides in a city that was written off categorically as dying. Uh, when I first got into the race, literally on a national list of America's 10 dying cities, and that we're proud of the progress we've made and recognizing in the areas where we lag behind uh, the need for intentional steps that we've been taking all along and keep adjusting and improving as we go uh, to make sure we get closer to where we need
1: to be. I know these are, 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 uh, at first, moral and governmental questions. They're also political Implications And right now, CNN did a poll last week, and you had 0% among African-American voters, uh, a group that you uh, called uh, the backbone of the Democratic Party. How do you fix that? And can you win uh, if you don't?
0: I'm not interested in winning without black support. I'm interested in winning black support and deserving to win black support. It's why we're making sure that through initiatives like the Douglas Plan, people understand exactly what I propose to do with the powers of the presidency and federal office to deal with racial inequality from uh, what's going on in the criminal justice system and the fact that we need to cut incarceration and can, I am convinced, without crime increasing, cut incarceration by 50% in this country all the way through to the reforms in the credit system that will help black entrepreneurs be able to create more jobs, and improvements in home ownership, education, and health. So part of it's making sure we communicate the substance of what we propose to do. Another very big part of it is just making sure that uh, I'm able to Uh, reach different communities where they are. So, uh, one thing that I've found, two things that I've found about black voters. First, uh, uh, they're not monolithic. There's no single black vote. Uh, Just like here in South Bend, you will find uh, enthusiastic supporters and you will find critics of mine in the black community. Um, But not only are we not talking about a a group that uh, uh, all uh, has the same voting preferences, uh, we're also talking about voters who do have this in common, which is that a lot of people feel like they've been lied to. Um, by various politicians coming along from both parties uh, for as long as I've been alive or longer. And so when you're new on the scene and you're not yourself from a community of color, uh, and you've got a a city with a complex history, um, you've got to do a lot of work uh, in a short amount of time. To build that trust and build those relationships. But we're determined to do it. And part of how we do it is modeling, uh, building a campaign team uh, that models that. And part of it's where I spend my time and the listening as well as the communicating outward uh, that we're doing. And I'm confident that it's going to help us m- reach many of those voters.
1: Race is um, not just been an issue for you in this campaign. You stood on the stage, you watched the confrontation between Senator Harris and Vice President Biden. First of all, did you think that was a a, a fair hit on him?
0: You know, I don't think it's really my place to evaluate the strategies. I'm giving you you leave to do it. Uh, You know, I think that, I think what is fair is to ask what kind of conversation we're having today and, and, and to insist that it take place without any kind of nostalgia or entrapment in a past that is uh, at best uh, ugly when it comes to race in this country. And also to recognize that the past and the present are uh, intimately connected here. This is not, sometimes we still talk about uh, slavery and institutional racism. Uh, Like we're dealing with far off things from the distant past that have worn off or should have worn off, and it's just not true. Uh, in addition to the legacy of historic wrongs like slavery, uh, we are facing the consequences of uh, things like discrimination in federal housing policy that took place without, on the without, books within living
1: memory. Without and, question. I mean, there's a terrible legacy uh, of uh, racism uh, in this country, which is why I asked you uh, the questions I did. This. Uh, this place which is now seeing a rebirth, a repurposing uh, here in in South Bend, uh, was for many, many years a symbol uh, Mm. of what uh, happened to this region and what happened to uh, the manufacturing sector and the people uh, who who worked in it. You've spoken, you spoke earlier uh, in our conversation about this. President uh, did uh, pretty well speaking to these people who feel like they have been on the short end Mm Of this stick, and you've been critical of the Democratic Party uh, for failing, particularly in 2016, but probably not exclusively, uh, to address address it. How how should they have addressed it? How did what what was not said by uh, Hillary Clinton, for example, that should have been said by uh, the Democratic nominee? That you would say?
0: Well, I think the Democrats were so mesmerized by everything that was terrible. About uh, Donald Trump. And obviously, there was a lot there. But that was so shocking to us that we spent way more time talking about him than we did talking about what was going on in voters' lives. And it allowed him, in a very dishonest way, but a rather effective way, uh, it allowed him to serve up this message that said that he was speaking uh, for so many people who had been left behind. Now, he doesn't actually care about people. I think you can tell that by his actions, his choices, the fact that uh, very little of what he's done has benefited working people in any part of the country. And yet, uh, there was this space where it began to look like Democrats were the party of the establishment. Like, we were the party saying the system was okay. And he was the one promising to blow up the system. And uh, Got 80% message,
1: of the voters who said change was the most important thing to them.
0: And, you know, again, he's not making it any better. But the reality is, if we, and I'm worried about this for 2020, If we are portrayed as a party that is promising a return to normal, which will be tempting because what we have now is so chaotic and awful, but if we look like all we have to say is, let's go back to normal, there's going to be a lot of people who feel like normal has not worked for them for decades. That, uh, again, starting the clock in the 70s, that rising tide they tell us about rose and the boats didn't budge.
1: So when you say that, is that a reference to the vice president? Because a lot of his message is about restoration?
0: Well I think he's one candidate who runs that risk a great deal not the only candidate who runs that risk and and a big part of what I'm trying to do in my campaign is demonstrate that we understand the causes of which this president is a symptom and that we have a, a plan to actually help master these changes that are only going to accelerate in our lifetime around technology around globalization Uh, around things like climate, that are starting to become punishing problems for traditionally conservative voters, like people in rural America who are finding that their ability to uh, grow crops is is being diminished uh, by the impacts of what I think most reasonable people would say is climate change-related weather disruption. All of this stuff adds up to a need to present something new something different and something responsive to these concerns. If all we have to say is we're going to go back to normal, then in some ways it could be perceived as a kind of different version of what the Republicans are saying. The Republicans want us to go back to the 1950s. Democrats might sound like we want to go back to the 1990s. A lot of people here don't think the 1990s worked for them any better.
1: So I went back and read some of your old political commentary from the Harvard Crimson Uh-oh. back in 2004. No, it was amazingly consistent, some of the things that you, uh, that you said back then. But this was during the 2004 presidential race. And you lamented the fact that the uh, Republicans uh, were better than Democrats at commandeering words and brand uh, branding issues and opponents. And so I wonder, just as a pure political matter, when you stood on that stage, and you saw candidates saying that they would support a uh, Medicare for all plan that would eliminate private insurance. When you and others said, uh, let's uh, decriminalize the crossing of the border or um, provide uh, health care, uh, government funded health care for, uh, for immigrant, uh, undocumented immigrants, what, what do the voters that you're talking about here in what you call flyover country, how do they Uh, how do they react to that? Because you know the president's already, his two words are are, are socialism and open borders. Right. I guess that's three words. Right. But um, isn't that just playing into his hands?
0: Here's the thing. Literally, no matter what we do, I mean, we could adopt the Republican platform today, and the president would still say we're socialists. We could build a wall ourselves and he would still say we're for open borders. So at the end of the day, what he says isn't gonna change much based on what we do. But if you are
1: for positions that could be interpreted that way, doesn't it make his job easier? Isn't it easier and better to fight back or to put you in a better position to fight back if you haven't, I know you didn't take the position that Medicare for all should eliminate private insurance and presumably you took it not just on a policy basis, but also because you understood that there's tremendous resistance to that.
0: Yeah, a lot of people don't want to hear that we're just going to snatch away their private health plans. But uh, at risk of sounding quaint, I think the best thing to do is talk about what we believe in, make the case for it, and if the case is compelling, then even in areas that are somewhat unpopular, we can begin moving American opinion in our direction. That's what Republicans have been doing for the last 50 years. In the late 60s and and early 70s, uh, Republicans adopted positions that would be considered preposterous about cutting taxes and cutting uh, government that um, by the 90s were so mainstream that even Democrats were saying they they, they ought to do them. I don't think we should shrink from our convictions. I do think um, that we should be realistic about what's going to work. And just flipping a switch and saying we're instantly going to have everybody on Medicare just like that isn't realistic. I think that uh, when it comes to a lot of these policies that we're being pushed to do, say that we can pay down the last penny of tuition for any student, including the child of a billionaire, uh, These are things that are questionable on their merits, and of course, also uh, pretty far out. Senator Sanders, uh, among others, uh, pretty far out from where Americans are. But I do think it's okay to get a little bit ahead of where the American people are on an issue if we really do believe in it. And again, the proof for that is the success across my lifetime of Republicans who um, many Americans disagree with on actually most issues, um, but they have tugged the country a certain way. It's time for us to work a little hard to tug the country back.
1: You. you, there's a debate going on in the Democratic Party right now. Some of it is around this immigration issue. There was a vote in the House uh, last week or the week before uh, about uh, emergency funding for uh, for the uh, uh, detainees on the border. Um, Speaker Pelosi ultimately accepted a bill from the Senate on the grounds that this is what's in front of us, this is what we can get done. She's come under fierce attack. And it's part of a larger ar- argument about um, you know, incrementalism and compromise uh, versus meeting force uh, with force, which is kind of the AOC uh, argument. Where do you fall
0: on that? It depends on the specific case in this specific case. Uh, I think that we had to get the money out there because people were suffering. But we're going to have more tests like this where we need to ask ourselves whether we think that we will gain much by meeting the others halfway or not. And I think uh, there are moments where we will do something as part of a compromise that makes sense. There will be more moments uh, where we will be forced to to recognize the fact that the other side is no longer operating in good faith. A good evidence of this is what's going on with the Senate Republicans. When Mitch McConnell said that they would have a hearing in 2020 for a Supreme Court nominee under this president, right. when it, there was a matter of principle for him, then in 2016, you couldn't do that in an election year. What that demonstrated is he's no longer pretending to be acting in good faith. It is just about power.
1: You may have to deal with him. That was- beaten to death in uh, the debates, but yeah. you, may, you may have to deal with him, and yeah. that uh, when you're president, and you'll have to get things done.
0: Well, the first thing that we should understand is that uh, if it's just about power for them, then we have to beat them, not in a nefarious way. We don't have to become them in order to beat them, but uh, we do have to do a lot more about the fact that more Americans agree with us on issues ranging from bipartisan immigration reform to wages to even gun safety, where we've been in a defensive crouch as a party. I would point out not
1: on the issue of uh, decriminalizing the border or on health care for undocumented. uh, I think,
0: actually, if if you explain to most Americans that we're proposing that uh, everybody be able to buy into this program, whether you're documented or not, most people can get there. But uh, when you look across the board on issues from choice to wages, to healthcare, big picture, uh, the the fundamental issues that Americans say are most important to them right now are all issues that people agree much more with Democratic positions than they do with Republicans. Are you
1: worried positions. about this internal warfare around these and other issues, though?
0: I think it's healthy at this stage to have a pretty wide range of ideas. And what in stage the party. does it
1: not become healthy?
0: Well, by next year, right? Th- look, there's going to be two dozen Democratic presidential candidates who are going to wind up not being the nominee need to rally around the one person who is. And if we learn nothing else in 2016, we have to have learned the importance of coming out of this unified. But for now, a vigorous contest of ideas across the democratic spectrum among people who probably agreed to the tune of 80% on most important questions, I think that's perfectly healthy.
1: Let me ask you something else about the debates. The two people who got the most notice uh, were Julian Castro and uh, Kamala Harris, because they threw. Uh, punches that landed. Uh, That's not your temperament. It's not your style. Is this a a disadvantage to you? We're coming up on another set of debates. I thought you did a fine job in those debates, but you didn't get the headline because you didn't throw the punch.
0: I think people right now are looking for a president who is steady. Now, I am a competitive person. This is a fierce contest and I will be competitive with my democratic competitors, just as I plan to be uh, fiercely competitive with the president when the time comes to take him on. But I think some of the made for television moments uh, can give you a little spike and then wear off. What people really wanna know is, what are you about? And they're sizing us up, not just from one moment on television, but moment after moment, understanding who we are, what we're about. What we're going to do for them, and I think that's how we win.
1: You're notoriously, or I shouldn't say notoriously, you're a famously chill uh, guy. Is it possible that your temperament actually is better uh, in terms of facing off with Donald Trump? Uh, you're 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 clearly unflappable.
0: Well, it's it's been observed that, that that Americans often go with the opposite of whatever we just had yes, in the presidency. Yes, I know someone who and, said that. Uh, <laughs> um, sometimes known as Axe's Theory of Opposites. I think. Yeah. Um, I think it's a convincing theory. And I also think that it doesn't get more different from this president in temperament than somebody like me. Look, people are inclined to put an ideological lens on all of these things, right? Forgetting that the current president doesn't even have an ideology. So it's not a matter of finding his ideological opposite, although I very much uh, think it's important for America to have more progressive leadership than we've got right now. It's also finding somebody who can deliver a different style of leadership than what we have. And, and that stuff matters. One of the things I learned the hard way as mayor is that it's not just about your management uh, uh, ideas and, and your policy proposals. It's also about uh, how you carry the office that you're entrusted with, how you use it to bring people together and call people to a certain set of values. And I want people to see not just a policy alternative to this president, um, but a different kind of leader who generate So in that sense, there's
1: all of this tussling in the debates sort are of counterproductive?
0: I think it's it's fine. It's part of the process. But uh, I think that it, it might mesmerize the commentators on a day-by-day level. I'm not sure Careful that there. anybody, you know, three or five or seven months from now is going to say that this singer in that yeah. debate is why this candidate won.
1: So, uh... I mentioned at the top that you raised uh, quite a bit of money, almost $25 million in a quarter, which was phenomenal. In this book, uh, you, you you were talking about your race for state treasurer of Indiana, and you so you have to wonder about fundraising, whether, like, spending too much time typing or sunbathing, it does something unhealthy to you in the long run. You've just done 70 fundraisers uh, in places like Hollywood and Wall Street, Silicon Valley. Um, you're, you've become kind of a favored candidate of, uh, of the elite, uh, and you're the flyover uh, America guy, Are, does it give you any concern?
0: Well, we're trying to reach everybody at every different level. It's why, in addition to the uh, traditional political work we do, we also have a lot of grassroots fundraisers where uh, uh, tickets are very affordable. We'll fill a, a theater full of people to make sure that uh, that we're interacting not just with the, uh, the kind of traditional uh, party raisers, but anybody who really cares. about Elizabeth well where
1: the Warren's headed. not doing any fundraisers at all. She just raised almost as much as you, a little twenty not quite. million. Yeah, okay, you are competitive, <laughs> uh, but um, but she said. She she's not doing them because she thinks they're corrosive. And you sort of hint at this in your own writing.
0: Yeah, Uh, I mean, I think ultimately this only gets better when we fix the system itself. Citizens United was a disaster for American democracy. And until we change our campaign finance system, which is not something that uh, an individual candidacy can do, but it is something that a president can lead the way on. And again, something that Americans want and Republicans resist. Until we get that, uh, we're going to continue to have this problem that uh, the people we elect and expect to spend their time solving our policy problems are spending way too much of their time just raising the dollars they need in order to pay the field organizers in Iowa. Yeah, how else can we fund our campaign? So you're
1: going to play by the rules as they're written now and then try and change them if you get the chance? Well, I can't change them until we get the chance. So, Mayor, this is a special spot in your town. Tell me what this represents to you.
0: So this is a place that really brings together all of the change, the growth, and the transformation that we've had. You know, the, the way the uh, river used to run here was that it was kind of a combination between a conveyor belt and a sewer. a powered industry a hundred years ago. And then we went through this period of decline. Not a lot was happening here. Now we see. New residential construction. Uh, this is an area where we have uh, a, a lightscape at night uh, over I the river. You can see the uh, light towers over here. Art. Yeah, exactly. Those towers are part of this public art installation. Uh, we launched it as part of our anniversary celebration 150 years of this city, and it was a moment that let us really send a message that South Bend was back, that, that we were growing after years of, of really taking it on the chin. I mean, we were a company town that lost our company and spent 50 years figuring out what to do if we weren't going to be making cars in the old way. Uh, but now you see uh, some of the first residential construction downtown saw in decades followed by more where that came from. People come here at night, they enjoy the river and uh, it shows what can happen when a town starts to get back on its feet. You. Uh... You
1: were a hotshot young consultant at McKinsey uh, before you ran for mayor, and you came here with a kind of head full of ideas about how to use data and how to analyze problems. And How much did that come into play in, in, in trying to revitalize the city?
0: It was a huge part of the job, uh, but what I learned quickly was it was not the only part of the job. So the management stuff, the stuff you can count, the stuff you can measure, was was really a big deal for making sure that a, a city starts growing and that you uh, you use all the mechanics of government in the right way. But a lot of what really mattered here was just the way the city feels about itself, uh, allowing the city to, uh, uh, to have permission to believe, telling a story that we could all come together around on, on how we were in this together. That took me a little longer to, to understand because it was... Not the sort of thing I learned, you know, in a business background. Uh, but it's it's culture as well as uh, as well as performance management, whatever you ca- got to call it. And it. It all fits together. There's kind of a moral dimension to the job that sits right alongside the the management side of things.
1: You know, um, every city in this region has confronted, in some form or fashion, the, the challenges that South Bend has confronted. Many of them had one yeah. major employer that went away uh, as Studebaker did uh, and left the town in, in in decline. But as we see cities coming back, there is this tension and that tension is um, as you bring in, you know, uh, tech businesses and as you try and attract young professionals back to uh, the city and so on, there is this fear of gentrification mm-hmm. and you, you embarked, one of your early initiatives was you knocked down a thousand uh, abandoned homes which were blight mm-hmm. in the city. Many of them were in minority uh, neighborhoods. You rebuilt some of them, mm-hmm. tore others down, uh, all with good intentions, mm-hmm. but it became controversial because people started asking in those communities, is this for us? Mm-hmm. Where do we fit into this plan? And that, there's no algorithm that can teach you about how to deal with that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, a lot of it goes back to trust. So even when we were doing things that neighbors had asked for for a long time, uh, when the city started coming in to fix houses or remove houses that couldn't be saved, the question was, okay, are you doing this for us or are you doing this to us? and it took a lot of quantity time uh... we had to adapt to what we were doing based on the feedback from the community in the end it, it made a lot of uh... people better off especially uh... minority residents in low-income neighborhoods uh... but it took a lot of work to establish trust around what the intention of it was because people were re- reading and hearing about gentrification happening in a lot of cities on the uh, on the east and west coast and even though uh... that's not one of the top issues happening on the west side of south bend right now i mean we got uh, land that uh, probably nobody will uh, be prepared to buy or invest in for, uh, for another decade or more. Uh, there's still that fear of, is this going to make me worse off, is this going to diminish my place in the future of this community?
1: And yet these blighted homes were also a danger to the communities.
0: Absolutely, and that's why we undertook it, was neighbors were saying, you know, this house next to me has been vacant for 10 years, I have no idea who even owns it. And the fact that it was sitting there collapsing, to them, it was evidence that the city didn't care about them. Now, that wasn't actually true. The city over the years had tried to do different things, but uh, uh, but the truth was, uh, you know, they didn't see their neighborhoods getting better. And that's what we had to change. That's what the idea of fixing or removing a 1,000 houses in a 1,000 days was all about, proving that the city really would invest in these neighborhoods that felt cut out of investment for so long.
1: We, we talked earlier about this issue of, of trust. Uh, this, this was a politically difficult thing for you, and in fact, you lost support in those neighborhoods from one election to the next, and that was one of the major reasons why.
0: In some areas, yeah. I mean, people uh, over time really, uh, you know, some folks approved of one part of the policy, disapproved of another, and vice versa. But, uh, you know, what we found, I think, was that there was more support on the housing side. Uh, more frustration on the policing side where we're taking a lot of steps but it didn't amount to a department that uh, uh, that everybody felt they were connected to or that they could trust
1: Um, culturally uh, what did you learn from that uh, experience because I I can you know you're like I said you're the young management whiz who's coming in with all these uh, big ideas Uh, what what did you learn about yourself and communicating with these communities and every community uh, in this world.
0: Well, I think when, when you arrive at a challenging situation with good intentions, uh, you kind of expect to be trusted. And you can't. You, you can't, especially for low-income neighborhoods, for black residents who feel like they've been lied to by everyone in charge for as long as they've been alive. They're not going to trust you just because uh, you, you show up meaning well. Uh, they want to see results, and they want to be Did that surprise you at that moment, uh, uh,
1: in, the, in, the, in the first I instance? I think early
0: on, yeah, there was a part of me that thought, hey, I'm trying to do the right thing here. Why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you believe in what we're doing? But no, you have to actually prove it, and you have to listen, and, and, and you have to reshape some of what you're doing based on that input and feedback. And there was a lot of that that happened, too. There were a ton of things we had to learn the hard way. Uh, and uh, you know, you, the other thing you learn is just how different the experience of living, even within a mile of where I live, just how different that experience is for uh, for residents who have different backgrounds, and and especially when you think about the black experience in this country and in this city, um, where people were excluded from from neighborhoods uh, almost by law within the lifetimes of my parents, uh, in addition to in all these informal ways that people were excluded, uh, and all of the other issues that people are up against. Uh, of course, there's going to be deep mistrust of uh, anything that comes down from an administration, including mine. What uh People
1: will say, bright young guy, obviously smart, but he's the mayor of a town of 100,000 people. Uh, And what are the lessons that are relevant to the most
0: important job on the planet? Well, I think it's precisely in a community like this one that you can see the story that a lot of the coverage is missing. You know, there are a lot of uh, commentators who were befuddled by the idea that in 2016, we'd have a so-called economic anxiety election in the middle of full employment. But if you're from a community like this, you understand exactly how that could happen. You see uh, whole neighborhoods and and whole parts of communities uh, where it's as if this recovery never even happened. Uh, You see what happens in this great middle expanse of the United States and in communities that uh, are not the biggest cities in the United States, but uh, but whose experience collectively is such a big part of the, the American story. I actually think we need far more voices than we have today Especially in the Democratic Party, speaking for communities that are mid-sized and smaller and rural and, and, and suburban, uh, rather than appearing to be a party of this, the biggest cities alone. The uh, the
1: President of the United States, of course, speaks for the entire uh, country. And so, what about the scale? What about the idea that uh, you know this is a good-sized town in, in Indiana, but it's but it's a relatively small uh, town, yeah. and now you're running the military, you're the most important voice, you can send markets rising or falling as we've seen. I presume in your case it wouldn't be with a tweet, but it could be with a comment. (laughs) Um, What prepares you for that?
0: Well, think of it this way. You could be a very senior U.S. senator and have never in your life managed more than 100 people. Uh, But people are less likely to ask that question of a senator because they see you operating in Washington. Uh, What I think is that it's certainly important, more important than ever, to have government experience, executive experience, including the kinds of experience that a mayor of a city of any size has. Uh, But perhaps also important at a moment like this to have experience gathered outside of Washington. Nobody walks into the Oval Office uh, actually having experienced the presidency from within. Uh, you have to bring the experiences you do have, which in my case is uh, the leadership experience of guiding a city like ours, plus the experience of being in the military and and having a a very specific experience of the presidency and that it ordered me into war, uh, and have that add up into the ability to seek out advice on what you don't know and apply everything that you do know.
1: Do you think that that experience at this moment of being in the Congress that is so uh, deeply, deeply embroiled in partisanship and warfare political warfare, it, it sh- is that a demerit for the people who serve there?
0: Well, I do think that Spending too much time in Washington may constrain your imagination about the ways in which Washington needs to change. Uh, I've encountered a lot of senators who can't get their head around the idea that we would ever undertake reform of the Supreme Court, for example, even though this country has done that many, many times in the past. The idea that, that we even dare to talk about constitutional remedies to what is broken in our democracy, from money in politics to the need for a national popular vote. Uh, I think that uh, sometimes when you uh, spend so much time understanding the ways of Washington, you wind up, uh, perhaps more than you intend, also accepting those ways. And that's where I think that outside perspective can be a benefit.
1: Isn't there a sort of a happy medium, though, because some of the ideas that you've mentioned, you, you talk about uh, doing away with the Electoral College, that would require a whole bunch of states in this country to surrender some of their power. It seems unlikely. It's not, it seems unlikely as a political matter and as a matter of Human nature. So there is a there also is a need for realism sure. and, and the ability to. Uh, reach for what's possible,
0: isn't yeah. there? Well, and I think nobody has more uh, concrete awareness of realism in government than a mayor in a community with very low income, tons of constraints, and the need nevertheless to get things done today. So in addition to having uh, big ideas about deep structural changes that might take a generation to deliver, I'm also in the business of getting things done immediately because I get the 3 a.m. phone call about how to solve a problem the next day. Uh, you experience the, the very direct Uh, issues of infrastructure and uh, safety and economic development that uh, you can't afford to uh, just have pie in the sky ideas. you got to get something done right now. And that's the happy medium that I guess I'm trying to strike, is to have the pragmatism that you are absolutely required to uh, as a, a mayor in a city with a lot of constraints. And at the same time, the idealism of wanting to come in from the outside and deeply change the way that a place like Washington works uh, because we have for far too long accepted the unacceptable and it reminds me a lot of things i heard when i first took office here in South Bend where over and over again i would hear the phrase uh... this is the way we've always done it and i think there's that attitude that's settled into our national politics that we tolerate things that have actually only been this way for one or two generations Uh, and i think it's going to fall to my generation to come up with something better
1: we talked about gentrification before Uh, One thing that I noticed is that the poverty rate among African Americans, Hispanics here are significantly higher than the average for uh, the nation. That's right. And in that sense, how much progress has been made here? I mean, you you know, you talk about bifurcated economies. It feels like here in your own town, there's some of it. Some of it's moving up and some of it
0: isn't. Absolutely. And you know, this didn't begin with my administration and it won't end on my watch, but we've made progress. Uh, So there's two ways of looking at it. I can point to the fact that black unemployment is down by half since I took office, or we can face the fact that it's still double what it is for white residents. I mean, there's no question that the issues of racial inequality around uh, education, housing, uh, access to capital, criminal justice, of course, and health—that uh, we feel around the country, we also feel very much right here, especially in a low-income com- community like this. But the investments that we've made in supporting minority businesses, in supporting underinvested neighborhoods, uh, in helping lift families up, have made a real difference. They've—they've they've lifted thousands of people out of poverty, or at least contributed to that happening.
1: Well, what is the thing that you, one way or another, you're leaving this job? You may be going on to a bigger job, or you may be going on to to an undetermined future, but you've decided you're not going to run uh, for mayor again. What will you miss most about this job, and what will you not miss the most about this job?
0: What I'll miss most is the chance to shape the the hometown that shaped me. Uh, This is a city that's been through a lot, uh, that's had colossal challenges thrown its way, but in this decade has proven that it can grow, that it can be successful, and can do that without uh, nostalgia, without trying to turn back the clock. Uh, The things you don't miss are the things about politics that are always a a drag on your well-being, the negativity, the the, the challenges that go uh, with uh, trying to uh, take people uh, who are very much being torn apart uh, and and, and wrestle with that. Um, And the other thing that's really tough about this job Dealing with violence, uh, dealing with things like gun violence, often with one hand it's tied behind our back—it's a persistent problem. Here. It's a horrible problem in in uh, so many communities uh, with a makeup like ours. And again, there's two different stories you can tell. I can talk about uh, how many fewer people are lost to gun violence here today than when I was a kid, but that doesn't do any good to the mothers that I am consoling far too often uh, when we lose another young person, and it's usually a young person to gun violence in this city.
1: You've been mayor since you were 29 years old. Now you're all over the country running for president. what do you hear from your constituents? are they are they hey man, I want you I, I got a sewer problem here I no. want or my garbage isn't getting picked up and you're in LA at a candidate's forum. What, what, what has been there Or do they say this is cool
0: South Met bends on the map. People have been enormously supportive. It's one of the things that's made it possible for me to do this, but they expect the city to work for them, and so uh, you know this is only possible because we do have an administration that's delivering for people. If if we weren't able to do that, uh, I'd be in trouble quick.
1: They had practice when you were away on your tour of duty.
0: That's true, yeah. We learned a lot about how to uh, do things by remote control when I was uh, deployed, and uh, and the city did well then, too.
1: Let me talk a little bit about your your own journey. Uh, South Bend is your classic kind of town-gown community. Notre Dame is a big institution here and your dad who was an immigrant from Malta was an eminent uh, academic. Both your parents were uh, academics at uh, Notre Dame and he was in particular, he, he taught literature and history, philosophy, kind of a man of the left. He, was, he had an active voice on campus about uh, human rights and apartheid. Spent uh, Uh, I think a dozen years or more, translating 3,000 notebooks of a guy named Antonio Gramsci, who was uh, a communist who was languishing in uh, Mussolini's prison camps. Uh, What was it like growing up in, in that environment?
0: You know, it was, it was, uh, it's quite a way to grow up. Uh, my parents would have their professor friends over to dinner, and I'd be trying to uh, figure out what it was they were talking about because the table talk, I mean, half of it was workplace gossip like anywhere else, but then half of it was these incredibly deep, sophisticated conversations about uh, the, the history and where the world was headed. And as I grew older, I started to dial into them and, and, and at least faintly understand what it was they were talking about.
1: You, you, said, in, you said that it was in high school. In your book, you said it was in high school when you began to think uh, about uh, maybe a career in, in public service. Were those discussions instrumental?
0: In, in a way, but actually, we, because my parents were academics, they were very passionate about politics, but uh, it took a while for me to realize that that somebody like me could actually be involved. We, we weren't politically connected in any way growing up, and so uh, for a long time, I viewed politics as something that other people did who were connected in some way that I couldn't understand. Uh, then I began to realize that that uh, maybe I could actually be part of public service, that I could take these things on. It, it started out, out as a class joke in my senior history class, uh, uh, that uh, uh, that I'd run for office someday, and then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, I could do some good here, and, and I don't office have or to, president. Did they see um, you as a president back then? Uh, again, as a, I think, as a, in the spirit of a class joke, when I became senior class president in high school. But uh, um, but it
1: does seem like you you've kind of made us a, a very intentional journey uh, to public office. You went to Harvard, Oxford, uh, and then you went to McKinsey, a gigantic. Uh, yeah consulting firm and steeped yourself in business and, and, and data, um, and, then, and then you enlisted in the reserves. And I know uh, you've talked about why uh, you did that and how offended you were by the notion that uh, so, so few were carrying the burden uh, of war, but um, all of these seem like you were building toward something.
0: Yeah, there were moments when I might have taken a detour, thought I was going to be a journalist or wanted to see what the business world had to offer, but at the end of the day, my, my North Star was always public service because uh, I, I had felt that I cared more about that than anything else I could be doing, and uh, in particular in my time in business. Uh, I mean, there was a lot to be said for it. Uh, it, it was stimulating. You know, the pay was good, but um, but I didn't feel that same sense of meaning or purpose that I did Uh, even when I had been volunteering or or, or, uh, helping out on on other campaigns. And so of all the different things that I learned about or sampled in my 20s, as you do, um, nothing wound up mattering as much to me uh, as the chance to be in public service.
1: Tell me about your experience uh, in the military. You were already mayor when you got called to Afghanistan. Uh, You were part of Naval Intelligence on loan. Uh, to the army you've you've talked about national service for the yep. country because you said it was important for people of different backgrounds to get to know each other and right. service was a great way to do it who did you meet were there people who you met who were from completely different places uh... that changed the way you thought about things
0: yeah totally because people had such different stories uh... you know uh... A guy who had a a pecan farm in in Georgia and had had uh, part of a rocket go through his tricep and uh, talked about being uh, injured uh, as though, in a way, as though it were one of the most important uh, and semi-positive experiences he'd ever had. Totally changed my uh, understanding of uh, how somebody who definitely had a different political outlook than I do uh, would think. It's, uh, the is by far the most racially integrated organization that I've been part of. Uh, You know, you're side-by-side with people who have just totally different lives. Lives than you do and it doesn't mean that you wind up automatically changing to the way they see things or agreeing with them but you learn to have a kind of regard for people that are different from you that, that have different values from you and still uh, uh, believe that they're uh, worthy of trusting your life to and, and it's one of the things that motivates my interest in uh, having national service opportunities for all young Americans uh, is that uh, you know you shouldn't have to go to war to have that kind of experience, but there are fewer and fewer, I think, ways in current American life that people who have such different interests and backgrounds and stories actually wind up thrust into a situation where they're together working on something challenging and building those bridges across these kinds of divides.
1: you became disillusioned, as you write, uh, when you were over in Afghanistan, because you arrived just as the president was announcing uh, the, a winding down of our engagement. There were a partial winding down of our engagement. And one of your uh, buddies said, the war is over. And you began to think about what it meant to be involved in an endless uh, war. Yeah. How does that, How would that affect you as commander-in-chief and the thinking that you would put into these very grave decisions that you'd have to make.
0: Well, the first is understanding just how important when it comes to wars, uh, how important it is to not start one if you can help it. Because uh, it very much weighed on me uh, when, when somebody said the war is over, and I'm thinking I could get killed in a war that a lot of people think is over. That was in 2014. When I left Afghanistan in the fall of 2014, I thought I was one of the last guys turning out the lights. And now, five years later, we're still there. I don't think we're that far off from the day when we could uh, turn on the news and hear about an American casualty who is not even alive on 9-11. And so it forces you to confront the question of what it takes to end these endless wars. And part of it, of course, is that we need a president committed to doing that. But we also got to recognize the role of Congress. I think Congress has all too gladly surrendered its war powers because it's politically difficult and messy to get into these things. And the result was, you know, when we had troops killed in Niger, a number of experienced members of Congress admitted that they didn't even know we were there in the first place. Uh, What started out as an authorization for force to deal with 9-11 has now taken on this uh... this kind of zombie quality that it's it's never ending and so it motivates me as somebody who could be sitting in that office that's making these choices uh, to make sure that we have a way to unwind the conflicts we're in and that what we would not... the test
1: for getting in be
0: well it's got to be either a response to an attack or a direct threat on the united states or our treaty allies or an internationally legitimate coordinated action to do something like prevent a genocide. What you wouldn't do is deal with a situation like Venezuela, where you had the national security advisor kind of casually suggesting we might send troops. Uh, you would not commit, no, no matter how important and it is, that, that we believe Venezuela ought to enjoy uh, free and fair elections and self-determination. It's not the kind of situation the U.S. troops ought to get into. You look at Iran, where we seem to be on this slippery slope, a situation that could get out of the control of both the Iranians and our own White House. And you recognize just how dangerous it is to have uh, the pathway that we're on, but also personnel is policy. The president right now has asked one of the people who engineered the Iraq War, John Bolton, to be a leading figure in American national security. Uh, We've got to surround the Oval Office with people who, whether it's by way of personal experience in the military uh, or by way of a commitment to international peace and security, uh, are going to be doing everything in their power to make sure it is never necessary for the U.S. to enter into an armed conflict.
1: Uh, just very much switching uh, subjects, let me ask you, at what age, you would be the first uh, gay president, uh, the first president who's gay, at what age were you aware of your own sexual orientation?
0: You know, I think I was aware maybe that I was different pretty early on, but uh, I was pretty far into my 20s before I was actually ready to acknowledge, uh, even to myself uh... that i was gay it was a simple fact of life but it's amazing uh... what you can uh, what can happen in your mind it's almost like a war breaks out inside you uh... when something is true that you don't want to be true
1: why did not you want it to be true
0: i think you know i grew up even though i had a wonderful and accepting family uh... growing up in indiana uh... having your professional choices mostly revolve around service and elected office and uh... and service in the military um, doesn't exactly create an easy path for somebody who's different.
1: So you felt that it would be a barrier to, the, to, to your goal of service if you were openly?
0: And frankly, just a barrier to living well in, in, in the world I'd been brought up in. I did not know one out student in my entire high school of nearly 1,000 people. Uh, if I had come out then, I would have been the only one. There's no question I was not the only one, but as far as I knew, As far as I believed that was the case and uh, it it took me longer than uh, than many people uh, to confront this basic fact and and then when I did uh, by then I'd become mayor uh, or I was about to become mayor I was I was pretty busy uh, and I didn't mind at first not having a dating life Um, but eventually those things catch up to you and you realize that you got to move forward because you're not getting any younger
1: yeah you know um... Uh, I I did an Axe Files podcast with Barney Frank some time back, and he talked about uh, going to events, sometimes for himself, and people would come as couples, they'd come with their partners, and then they would go home, and he would go home alone, and it it must have been terribly lonely. It must have been lonely for you.
0: I didn't think of it as lonely at the time, but looking back, I must have been. Uh, I just filled my life with other things. I was busy. I, I always thought to myself the city was a jealous bride and, and it was going to uh, consume as much attention as, uh, as I had to give. It was really only the deployment that, that kind of shook me awake. And I realized my life could end uh, as, a, as a grown man in a position of responsibility uh, who has no idea what it's like to be in love. And I realized how crazy that was and what I was doing to myself. Um, by not allowing myself to have that side of my personal life and uh, even though at the time i couldn't imagine how people with spouses or partners uh... do politics now that i'm married uh... i have a hard time imagining how i could possibly do this if if i were alone
1: you uh... you disclosed the uh... news to your parents first then your staff and then ultimately in an op-ed in the newspaper in the midst of your reelection campaign here um, in uh... two thousand and sixteen uh, what, what were your fears uh, at that moment? What were your and what were your expectations?
0: Well, it, it was really the fear of the unknown because there was no way to know. It was a re-election year. Uh, I, I felt that I was uh, strongly supported in this city, and it's a city that tends to vote Democratic, but it's a also a very socially conservative place. I mean, this is Indiana. Mike Pence was the governor at the time. Yeah, and we'll talk about uh, that. And it's not like you could. It's not like you could do a poll and say, you know, if you knew Mayor Pete was gay, would you, would you that would kind of give up the whole game. So, <laughs> you know, we just had to, I just had to take that leap of faith and make peace with the fact that uh, as somebody who could lose my job over this, uh, that I'd be okay with that uh, knowing that I could live my life with integrity and, and be who I was
1: you know uh, uh, one of the lines that I loved in your book was you talked about that August weekend when some algorithm served Chaston and me up to each other seemed very typically you uh, <laughs> to think of it in terms of that but you met on a dating uh, on a dating site. Uh, Chaston, who I've come to know I was at your wedding uh, is as extroverted and ebullient as you are restrained in many ways.
0: How has he changed you? You know, I think he's helped me come alive to uh, the ways in which having an office, like even like that of mayor, certainly being a presidential candidate or being a president, creates all these different ways to brighten other people's lives. And, uh, you know, he was always tugging at me to uh, to go to one more event here in South Bend and, and just say, you know, think of all the people whose day you can make a little bit better by seeing them out in the street and telling them that what they're doing is important. Uh, and, you know, I think we're probably the opposite of most political couples where you got a, a very extroverted, gregarious uh, uh, politician and then often a spouse who's a little less excited about being in the public eye. Um, but there's a great kind of... Uh, um, uh, I don't know, there's something about the, the, the way we play off each other that I think helps, uh, helps wake me up to some of the possibilities around me and, you, and balance me out.
1: You've talked about having a family. Is yeah. that in the offing? Probably not during this campaign. Huh?
0: I hope so, yeah. The campaign's obviously uh, not the most uh, conducive to, to figuring out how to have kids, but um, Justin is born to be a parent. Um, I he's want to teacher. be a He's a teacher. Yes. yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, he's great with kids. Um, and uh, and he will make an amazing father.
1: And how would that happen With, through adoption? Or? That's what we got
0: to figure out. Yeah. Um,
1: um, you you write so compellingly about the letters you got once you came out. Yeah. What would it mean, do you think, uh, for you to be elected president in terms of in terms of uh, young? Uh, uh, Gay people in the country. You know, one of
0: the biggest things we've encountered on this campaign is people letting us know what what it means to them, uh, just to have an out person running. I mean, uh, because of all the advances we've made with marriage equality and other things, especially in this decade, sometimes we forget that uh, this is still really tough for a lot of people, especially in communities where you might think you're the only uh, young person in your community who's different. Uh, I mean, kids are still killing themselves right now. And, and we've even heard from kids or, or parents uh, who uh, let us know that, that uh, you know, kid's life was in danger and it met, meant something to them uh, to see this campaign. I have people sometimes come up to me uh, from an older generation who never thought that this would be possible. And sometimes they come up to say hello and they can't even speak. And, uh, and that's when I realized that, uh, you know, I, I didn't get into this to be the, the gay presidential candidate, and I'm not running to be the, the gay president. But, um, but it does create a sense of uh, opportunity, but also responsibility uh, when you realize that, that you're letting a lot of people who grew up believing they were less than, uh, you're letting them know that, that they do have a future, that they're represented, and that they can do anything.
1: Now, you have run into, you you've said... Uh, Uh, and I think some of them have been public, uh, incidents of homophobia on the campaign trail. And, um, you know, we we talked earlier about the obstacles you face in the African-American community. Uh, The African-American community was more resistant than most Democratic cohorts uh, to the concept of same-sex marriage. That's traditionally been, is this this one of the other barriers you have to cross there?
0: Maybe, but when I think about especially what's happening with uh, uh, resistance to LGBT equality in pockets of the black church, uh, what I really worry about is not the effect on somebody like me. I worry about the effect that it's having uh, on kids Uh, and, uh, you know, kids who often face a lot of barriers already. Uh, because they're uh, they're youth of color, um, but now they have this added burden that uh, the very place, the church, the very place they turn to for safety, for guidance, is telling them that that they're wicked. Uh, and uh, a lot of the young people who, who come to me on the campaign trail uh, are 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 people of color too. It's it's a it's a concern, but I also have a great deal of hope uh, that, like any other prejudice, uh, we can move past this.
1: Um. What, what has the homophobia expressed itself that you've encountered?
0: You know, it's, it's everything from ugliness online to uh, people showing up at some of our events. and It's a strange thing to be—I I can, I can deal all day with being protested for a position that I hold or a decision that I've made. Uh, it's a little weirder to be protested for existing. But the other thing that happens whenever that's taking place on the trail is, uh, it very quickly uh, there's very quickly a response from from everybody else around um, that says that's that's not who we are, and uh, I think that uh, you know there will always be some kind of rear guard action, um, and and it's uh, it's frustrating, but. Um, i got to make sure the focus at the end of the day is on what this campaign will mean for Americans, why it matters to everybody, Mm -hmm. whether you're gay or straight or black or white, why it matters for anybody that that it be me and not somebody else in that Oval Office.
1: So here's a quiz for you. Who said this? South Bend, Indiana is so blessed to have an energetic, innovative, forward-looking, creative mayor in Pete Buttigieg. Uh,
0: Oh, I think I know where you're going with this. (laughs) Is that that our VP? Yes. Yeah.
1: Mike Pence. That was nice of him. He was a big uh, admirer of yours. Um, and you worked with him. Yeah. Um, but you've been pretty tough on him lately, uh, calling him the uh, cheerleader for the porn star presidency and really questioning uh, his, his faith uh, or his commitment to his faith in supporting some of the behavior of uh, Donald Trump. Do you believe he and, by extension, white evangelicals who've embraced Trump have betrayed their faith?
0: I mean, I don't know the inner workings of another person's faith, but I know hypocrisy when I see it. And when you have individuals or a party that cloaks itself in religious garb, that that uses religious language all the time, that's even gone so far as to uh, sometimes seek to impose their religion on others, And then you see them behaving in a way that is the exact opposite of the scriptural commandments that tell us that we are to uh, look after the prisoner and welcome the immigrant and uh, heal the sick and concern ourselves more with the poor than anybody else. That in our leaders we should look for humility and decency uh, and even servitude. Um, When you see just how far from that the uh, project of the current religious right has become, I think it's got to be called out. Uh, because either uh, one of two things is happening. Uh, either they have somehow convinced themselves um, that God would smile on tearing families apart or on the behavior of this president, or they don't care, and uh, it's all just kind of a sham when they say that these values Or are they abortion. feel
1: like uh, in some of his other public positions on judges, on abortion, and so on, that he is uh, aligned with them.
0: There's that term, making a deal with the devil. I can't think of a a more apt example of it than than if that's really true. But even then, um, you would think there would be more pangs of conscience uh, among conservatives who are religious. And it's one of the reasons why uh, we find that... that, uh, lots of people come to me talking about their appreciation for the fact that, that I do talk about faith on the trail. Uh, not because I, I I'd seek to...
1: You know, you, you do on the trail, there's 330 pages here and you wrote almost nothing about it in your book. Why?
0: Uh, you know, it's uh, not everything that was important in my life made it into the book. And, uh, and even as I was writing, I, I was in the middle of a, of a faith journey that I would say even now is incomplete. But... Um, What I think is really important in the political space is to let people know that they have a choice. It's it's not to say that if you're religious, you need to be a Democrat or a Republican, Um, especially because I think it's very important for candidates to speak to people of any religion and and no religion equally. But I I worry that, uh, and I've seen seen this a little, growing up in a very religious community, where I think some people uh, just associated being a Republican with being kind of decent and upstanding and church guy. And uh, if there was ever a time for that spell to be broken, it's under the presidency we're dealing with right now.
1: You uh, you speak eight languages. You taught yourself Norwegian in order to translate a, a novelist you appreciated. You're an avid musician. You play the guitar, built your own guitar, of course. And you uh, play the piano and has since you're five years old. And you played with your own symphony here, the South Bend yeah, Symphony. And and, I, and you wrote about it. Uh, you. You played, the, uh, you, you played Rhapsody in Blue with the uh, symphony, and you wrote that your piano teacher who you trained with for six months uh, urged you to play the music and not the notes. And that struck me as sort of a, a, a good lesson for presidential politics mm. uh, as well about uh, how do you make your narrative more than the notes? How do you make it distinctive enough to be heard and moving and connecting?
0: Yeah, I think uh, I hadn't thought about that, that comparison, but it's true. I think sometimes we get bogged down in the notes, especially Democrats, because we love our policies. We're policy people, by and large. And sometimes we get so caught up in explaining why our policy is better designed than the other person's policy that well, we forget to tell the story about why those policies matter. The fact that uh, we as Americans are dealing with a lot of forces in our economy, uh, in our, our government, and in the outside world that will either help us or hurt us in trying to live a good life. And that the whole reason we have, as a species, the whole reason we invented government, all the way down to the details, to the reasons we have things like a minimum wage or social security or a uh, a military, is to make our lives better than if we didn't. And if we locate the heart of our politics in the everyday, if we hold all of our politics accountable based on whether they're gonna make everyday lives better or worse, then I think we'll be better off politically, but also we'll be better off as a country. And when we veer away from that, either by getting too caught up in minutia, or by getting caught up in something like the, the kind of mesmerizing show that the current president puts on, it's very easy to lose our way. And part of what I'm trying to do in this campaign, as much as I like to geek out on policy details, and you'll hear more from me every week or two on another area where we think we have something to I could barely add, restrain you. Policy-wise. Um, but, but we've got to fit it back into that bigger picture, uh, because uh, people need to know whether we're for them or not. They need to know whether we're here to help or whether we're just in it for ourselves. And people, again, especially in this part of the country, the industrial Midwest, have watched Republican and Democratic presidencies come and go for as long as I'm alive and not seen their boats rise with the tide. Uh, we got to fix that, or we're going to be tuned out.
1: Well. Let me end where we began and say, um, it seems to me that wherever you go from here, that you've already kind of won because you've announced yourself as a a voice on the national stage. And I suspect a voice we're going to hear from uh, for many years to come. So good
0: luck. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.